On air, online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A big welcome to Monday's edition of the Country Hour, wherever you're listening, on the radio or streaming on the ABC Listen app. Coming up today with Rock Lobster Trade Talks with China back on the menu, how are local fishermen faring? It's been such a long drought sort of thing that we are in survival mode and um, I I don't think there's any silver bullet that's going to sort this industry out other than China coming back. And hurdles still in the way for the hemp industry to capitalise on. I get phone calls from farmers every week saying, I want to grow hemp, and I go, why would you want to grow hemp? Because people want it. I say, well, who's going to process it? Plus a breakthrough treatment for dealing with myrtle rust, a disease that attacks uh, eucalypts, among other natives. And you can send in your thoughts too on 0438 922 936. Well, let's kick off with seafood because in coming weeks, Federal Trade Minister Don Farrell will be meeting with the Chinese Commerce Minister in Abu Dhabi. It's here he's expected to ask for the removal of trade blocks on Australian rock lobster. It's an industry that's faced big challenges in recent years, but not everyone is confident the market will reopen. Meg Whitfield spoke to Carl Krauss, president of the Tasmanian Rock Lobster Fishermen's Association, while he was out on the boat this morning. It's been such a long drought sort of thing that... Let me get that audio for you. Here's Carl. The last four years have been shocking. <laughs> it hasn't really improved. Beach prices as low as ever, I suppose. Um, beach prices around the $40, $50 mark sort of thing, so half of what we were getting when we were going into China. Yeah, it's certainly tough. At, a lot of them doing it pretty tough, or we're all doing it tough. Have there been any signs of improvement? Taking China out of the market is a massive blow, but has there been any progress in getting into new markets or building the domestic product? Uh, it's all about supply and demand. When, when the when the fish are really hard to catch and there's very little on the market, the price improves, but when the fish are going well like they are now, the price is pretty average sort of thing. So, but um, yeah, just got to make the most of it. Have there been any other countries that have stepped up and said, actually, we want to take more of the product? Are there countries, say, Hong Kong or Singapore or areas like that that have actually been helping out or is it just... Oh, definitely. That's that's the only reason we're surviving you know. Some of the processes are finding little markets here and there, but there's, they're just not the volume. But it's not just Tasmania. You've got, you know, it's, Tasmania is only a thousand tonne, but you've got places like Western Australia that are looking for a home for their fish too, and you know, they're a seven thousand tonne fishery. So, have there been any other innovations that have kind of come through? You've talked about it a little bit there, saying you know tapping into these other markets has really been the lifeline for a lot of people. But have there been any changes to the industry that you've seen that? may be something that you actually want to keep going into the future even if that Chinese market does return and it comes back in full force? Oh, definitely. You know, there's lots of all these little niche markets that, you know, fishermen have developed and processes have developed. You know, that's, we've got to keep those going. You don't want all the eggs in one basket. So any, anything that gets rid of some somewhere is helpful. It's mainly the domestic market, you know, and the fishermen are you know, selling them on Facebook and that sort of thing, which is all a fairly new thing for our industries and, and it seems to be going really well. Yeah, so just finding new ways of getting the product out there and showing people that it's available, that kind of thing? That's it. That's, <laughs> and, you know, people got to realise, you know, that it is available. It's not all going to China, so... Yeah, like I said, Christmas market, Christmas market Easter market um, is what keeps us going. And then when the fish are in the winter are harder to catch, um, the price picks up a little bit there too. So everyone just, you know, we're just struggling along. And, you know, the fish stocks are good. You know, that's that's one thing that we have got in our favour. Fish stocks in Tassie are fantastic. So, yeah, that's what keeps everyone hoping So. It's not a bad industry to be in, actually. 
And as I mentioned before, so the the trade minister is going to be talking to his Chinese counterpart uh, in the, the coming weeks and hoping to get the Chinese market back on track. What are you hoping might come from that? We've been hoping for the last four years. Uh, <laughs> fingers crossed that's about it. We, you know, but seriously, we're not holding our breath. Uh, we'll just we'll see. We've heard it all, you know. 30, 40 times before and nothing's come of it. We've got a state election coming up. It's usually a pretty good time for people to put out a bit of a call, add up, add some pressure to people trying to vie to be our elected parliamentarians. Are there any things that you hope to see committed for the industry over this period? I think, I think you know, it's been such a long drought sort of thing that, you know, we're all just, we are in survival mode and um, everyone's just sort of, like you said, we're keeping an eye on each other, and, and I, I don't think there's any silver bullet you know, that's going to sort sort this industry out. You know, other than China coming back, and you just got to survive. You know, and it'd be as efficient. You know, you got to have a good business plan to survive in this game at the moment. That's for sure. Is there anything else that's happening in the industry that you think is important to note, or something that we might not be aware of? Oh, you know, there's there's a lot of good things happening. You know, we're just developing a, a ten year harvest strategy with the managers and the department. So you know, the, there is a lot of good things happening in this space, and we, you know, we're actually talking with the recreational sector and you know, resource sharing and everything. So there is some good good things happening. So and like I said, the main thing, you know, fish stocks are amazing. I'm actually see at the moment. And the, they're as good as I've ever seen them in the last 30 years, sort of thing. What do you reckon caused that? That's a pretty good outcome. Oh, the introduction, introduction of quota and catch caps on the East Coast. We, we take very little fish commercially off the East Coast now, like only 20% of the TAC comes off the East Coast, basically, because that area was hammered and um, yeah, needed rebuilding, and it, that's going well, going real well. Carl Krauss from the Tasmanian Rock Lobster Fishermen's Association speaking there with Meg Whitfield. Perhaps a silver lining there, but I think it'll be a case of watch this space on um, the trade resuming with China. We'll wait and see what happens with those talks in the Middle East in the next few weeks. Well, let's uh, take a look at horticulture now because an invasive fungal disease pushing some of Australia's iconic native plants towards extinction, including here in Tasmania, may have finally met its match. Myrtle rust attacks species like eucalyptus, paperbarks, tea trees and lily pillies, posing a serious threat to the environment and commercial native forests. Now researchers at the University of Queensland have developed a treatment using its own genes against it. As Dr Anne Sawyer explains how it could offer both a prevention and a cure. We've been working on developing double-stranded RNA as a biopesticide against myrtle rust. What we've recently shown is that this double-stranded RNA can actually be applied to plants at different stages throughout the infection cycle. So it can be applied to healthy plants before they get infected by the fungus and it can be applied up to two weeks after they're infected. So at two weeks, the plants are usually fully diseased, like they're showing complete disease symptoms. But what we found is that those plants, even though they already were infected by applying a double-stranded RNA, it actually improved their recovery from the disease. So when we looked at the plants six weeks after they were infected, um, they were actually recovering better than the plants that hadn't been treated with RNA. So they had a lot of new growth and they were looking a lot healthier than the plants that weren't treated, which had lost a lot of leaves and weren't looking so healthy. How widespread is this fungal disease and which native trees specifically is it affecting? So this fungus was first discovered in Australia in 2010 in New South Wales on the coast. And it's since spread all the way up the east coast of Australia. So it's all the way up into northern Queensland. It's in the Northern Territory. It Last year it was recently discovered just across the border in Western Australia at the top end of um, the country. And it's, yeah, also gone south.
south into New Zealand. So it's spread quite a fair bit um, in the last 10 years or so since it's been here. And it's infecting about 400 of our native Matasee species. So there, if you think of our iconic Australian plants, things like eucalypts, lily pillies, lemon myrtle, those are the plants that are getting infected. So what is the spray that you've developed and will it be able to replace fungicides? Yeah, so our spray is um, the active component is double-stranded RNA. So this is something that's not so common in nature. Um, In most organisms, we have RNA as a single-stranded form, so it's just one strand. Double-stranded RNA is a bit more like DNA, um, so it has two strands and it forms a sort of similar helix structure. So it's basically nucleic acid that we're just spraying on the plant. So it's something that's already found in all organisms. Um, So it's nothing harmful to us or to anything else. And we design the sequences so that they're they're highly specific just to this one pathogen. So they're not going to have an effect on any other organism. So where to from here with your research? So we've just done some small glasshouse experiments at the moment and we really want to take this into the field and see if it holds up under field conditions. Realistically, how long could it take, if you if you see good results, for it to be available? I think it'll still be a few more years, unfortunately, um, just because there's a lot of um, work that goes into product development and commercialisation. So I don't really want to give an estimate, um, but yeah, I'm hoping it it will be like maybe the next five to 10 years, who knows. Must be very exciting though. You're on the cusp of having some good results. Yeah, it is exciting. And, you know, you get a lot of people coming up to you and wanting a solution because they've got that disease in their garden. So yeah, it's it's really exciting that we might have a potential solution I don't know if RNA will completely replace fungicides, but at least if it can be used to reduce the amount of fungicides that are being applied, and that'll like protect our environment and protect us as well. Dr Anne Sawyer from the University of Queensland speaking to Joanna Marie. Up next, making the transition from farming in New Zealand to the northern midlands of Tasmania. Tasmania Votes 2024. Look after the elderly. Simple as that. Join Leon Compton and the Mornings team on the road at Brighton in the seat of Lions as we start to cross the state to get a feel for what you think the issues are that will decide your vote in the state election. We need more doctors. The candidates, the issues and you. I just want someone to be honest. Leon Compton on the road this Thursday morning from 8.30. Tasmania Votes 2024. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith this afternoon. It's 17 past 12. Well, the dairy boom of New Zealand in the 2000s meant traditional sheep and cropping farms on the Canterbury Plains were converted to dairy and many farming families that had lived there for generations got out. One young Kiwi family, Ben and Steph Tate, decided to pack up the tractor, the kids and their working dogs and start afresh near Epping Forest in the northern midlands of Tasmania. Claire Burberry caught up with Ben Tate on why he had to move out of New Zealand if he were to continue his farming career. The difficulty in New Zealand is that a lot of businesses are smaller and uh, it's quite common to have a lot of debt because uh, that would come from development or uh, expansion or previous intensification. But for every generation to have a crack at it, you really need to be consolidated to a position where you can go again, whether that be to pay out or retire someone or to expand. But the situation I was in was one where we were achieving good results to stand still. That was because our fixed costs were too high. I am a fifth-generation New Zealander, fourth-generation farmer. Uh, I'm from mid-Canterbury, so that's the the flat plains area south of Christchurch, an area that's gone through a lot of change in land use the last 25 years. So uh, it's traditionally a dry environment, which was wool and sheep production focus with with cereals and cropping. That's all sort of changed with intensification, with irrigation, a booming dairy sector the last 15 years. We had grown crop for a long time on the better soil 
surrounded by sheep farms, but we had sheep as well. What sort of crops? Uh, when we were dry land, pre-2008, mainly cereals and some brassica seed production with lamb trading. It was a, a great place to learn how to farm where it's very competitive and water's expensive and economies to scale are limited. Did you notice the slow change into dairy in the Canterbury region? It was kind of a fast change. There are a lot of farmers in the early 2000s that the outlook on sheep production wasn't that good. They may not have had any family help. Um, They might want to retire. There was a lot of my generation didn't go farming uh, because there was investment from outsiders, whether they be foreigners or the traditional dairy area in New Zealand was uh, the Waikato, which is in the North Island. And that was a pretty mature property market. And what could happen is a family business could sell out there, smaller scale, come down to the South Island, buy three or four times the area, um, add irrigation water and run a much larger business. It became the new best land use and it, it drove land values up. But that's also probably what saved our family business because, you know, that's where our balance sheet came from, was um, other people's intensification. Tell us about the farming community when you left school and how that had changed. I guess the community changed with the competitive land use. So, you know, I went to a local rural school that, you know, all of my friends were children of other farmers, other family farms and and of my age group at school I was the only one that that stayed on the land here we are six years later and I've gone where did they all go well a lot of them got a higher education and have professional jobs away from the land they all kind of disperse and did the family farms that they were on did they all get sold yeah yeah pretty well another family's leased out you know leased to dairy support so there's a lot of demand basically every acre that's converted to intensive dairy needs another acre to support it with dry stock and wintering and such and so the it wasn't just a change of land use with one property it was it was the vacuum it created for all the support it needed to run and it just sheep farmers couldn't compete with that a logical thing to do albeit a shame that you know, there's a generation gone that'll never have the skill set that our parents did. And what was the trigger for your family to think about moving out of New Zealand? I guess when I look at Tassie now, capital gain rural properties have had in recent years, that all happened. That had already happened in New Zealand, you know, before I was farming. But our family wasn't in a position to grow when land was cheap. Like everyone says in hindsight, should have bought that, it was cheap. Yeah, we just weren't in a position to grow investment from outsiders that drove land values up which sort of gave us the the traction to move again but by that stage it was better for us to intensify than we didn't it wasn't an option to expand uh, our land base so we intensified with irrigation and our land use changed to higher value cropping and dairy support and the risk profile of our business you know wind and hail with crops um we needed higher margins than what we were achieving. Yeah, so Tasmania was interesting because I guess our, our core business was grass seed production and we knew that a lot of our tonnes and allocated area were getting reallocated to Tasmania. The market in Australia needed grass seed quicker than they could get it out of New Zealand. So a portion of the grass used domestically in Australia really has to be grown here. And look, we we had a lot of experience doing that and... Um, and, and we knew that, that it could be done over here. Like we had a couple of scouting missions and met a couple of um, pretty good producers that were consistently getting yields as good as we'd seen in New Zealand, which were far beyond the district average. But that's probably because the seed industry here is still in its infancy. And, and I would say now that the average yields some six or seven years later are a lot higher than what they were six or seven years ago. Talking about the purchase of the farm here, you sold your farm in New Zealand for X. You bought the farm over here for Y. (laughs) At the time, we could sell one acre and buy three, um, whereas now you you wouldn't come close to that. The land here is different, uh, and that's probably the... The single biggest variable is, is soil type. Um, so I've had to learn a lot about that, but the farming systems are pretty similar. And, and the lesson out of this was that, you know, six or seven years later, that property we sold is still worth the same. What's the logistics of buying a farm in another country in terms of, you know, the financial transaction, moving here? How did you get all your things over? 
It was not too bad. Being a Kiwi, not really considered foreigners, and there was a threshold with the Foreign Investment Office of Property Value that we were under, so that was fine. And then as a Kiwi, you can just move here and apply for a tax file number. And So we're an Australian business, then we could just start trading. We brought three dogs, two tractors, a wife and two children. Still, still got the wife and two children. <laughs> ben, what are some of the things you really like about farming in Tasmania? I think access to water and our tempered climate. Those are the two things you don't see when you drive down the road. Probably oh, and access to markets, they're really good. The soil is not actually that good. If you have a market where you can grow something in the climate that we've got and back it up with water... Well, it's, um, it's an incredible place. Ben Tate, originally from the Canterbury Plains in New Zealand, now settled at Epping Forest, chatting to Claire Burberry about his transition to farming in the Northern Midlands. News headlines and weather not too far away, but before that, let's have a look at hemp because most of us are familiar with hemp clothing and maybe you've tried hemp seeds, but six years after hemp was first approved as food, hemp plantings have retracted in Tasmania. And interstate, farmers are sitting on the fence and waiting for others to succeed with the crop. They're also still waiting for new varieties that will grow well in Australia too. And there's only a few industrial hemp processing plants up and running. David Clawton looks at what's holding the hemp industry back. Agronomist John Muir is excited about his hemp crop. It chases you out of the paddock. (laughs) I've got crops that have grown seven metres in seven months, and that's phenomenal. He spoke to Michael Condon in northwest New South Wales at a Narrabri research station where hemp trials are underway. You can grow hemp seeds for human consumption or for the fibre, which can be used for industrial applications. So initially we were grain-focused. It's superfood, high-protein, high oil seed, but if it grows tall, we can turn this fibre... And the herd that's inside, like a uh, balsa wood, the outside is the fibre, the the sails and the ropes, the fibre and the textile, where the inner is the herd. It's like a chopped up wood chips. That is becoming a huge product market out there. It's replacing wood. It's replacing uh, plastic. It's in your BMW. We're looking at I-beams and steel being replaced with this carbon fibre replacement. One of the things blocking this new industry is investment in processing. There's only a few facilities in Australia now, and John Muir says the industry needs investors and to scale up production. We just need to get the investors to turn this plant into products. And what comes first? The chook or the egg, you know? They want 1,000 tonnes a week, not 100. The biggest crop at the moment is 1,000 hectares, and that has to be multiplied. But imagine if we could put it through a cotton gin, We wouldn't have to have as much investment infrastructure as just hemp. Agri-futures have done trials down the road here at Carroll at the Cotton Gin, and it's exciting. While there's still plenty of hype in hemp, others are warning about the risks and the challenges facing growers and investors. It is the most difficult crop you will ever wish to handle. There's people that are coming in and putting investment in thinking we're going to save the world, we're going to be the big ones, we're going to make the most money, we're going to float, and they're falling flat on their face. That's Colin Steady, a Hunter Valley grower who's trialled 14 different varieties in WA and New South Wales. He's been working on hemp for almost 20 years and his key message for growers is find a processor before you start applying for a licence to grow the crop and work out the money side. What are you going to pay the farmer? People have gone, oh, we can't get enough seed. Well, I've been importing seed from China and if you want to put in 10,000 hectares next year, I can get all the seed to do it. And then they go, we can't get the farmers. I get phone calls from farmers every week saying, I want to grow hemp. And I go, why would you want to grow hemp? <laughs> oh, because, because people want it. I say, well, who's going to process it? Oh, well, what's it worth to grow? I can give you an indicative price today, but you need to talk to a processor, and there's only two of them at the moment, and they've got more than they can use for the next 12 months. Mark Skews is the National Coordinator of the Hemp Crop Trials being run by AgriFutures at nine sites around the country. He says there are supply and demand issues at several points in the hemp market. Some of the product, potential products, there is a lot of demand, you know, enough processing capacity to meet that demand. 
In other cases with hemp seed production, for example, we're seeing that the market for that is growing, but not as quickly as some of the production side is growing. And so, you know, we've got a, a bit of an oversupply. Hemp seed was approved for human consumption six years ago. They can be eaten raw and they're used to make milk, oil, cheese substitutes or protein powders. While related to the cannabis plant, they don't have any of the psychoactive compound THC, which is found in marijuana. They're just tasty and nutritious. Another problem, though, facing growers is getting a good source of seeds to plant the hemp, either as a food crop or as an industrial crop to produce fibre. Seed supply is one of the challenges we face because there's not a lot of seed modification happening in Australia. So we're seeing a lot of seed still being imported from overseas and that's affecting both availability of seed when it gets held up along the way but also the quality of the seed that eventually arrives. Mark Skew says there's a lot of variability in the varieties they've trialled and results differ according to location. In the southeast of South Australia we've seen some of the highest yields of hemp grain, hemp seed, uh, in Australia at uh, you know, nearly two and a half tonnes a hectare uh, and they're doing it really well down there. So that's then garnering interest from their neighbours who are looking across the fence and saying, well, my property's not that different to yours. Why couldn't I do the same thing? So farmers are now just waiting for the trials to be completed to give them the best advice about what to grow where. AgriFutures is continuing its trials and will publish the results soon, according to Dr Olivia Reynolds. We're now in our third and final year of those trials and we hope to be able to soon make some really solid recommendations across our nine sites um, in every state and the Northern Territory of Australia around which varieties to plant and and what is the best time of sowing to plant those varieties and also some really good supporting uh, agronomic uh, data as well. And while efforts continue to scale up production, processors and researchers are looking for new industrial applications for hemp fibre. Colin Steady has been watching one company that's developing bricks and panels for the construction industry. A friend of mine in West Australia spent $3 million in R&D on hemp building blocks and lime, come up with a brick that we believe will be load-bearing. Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Yeah. And it is magnificent. Mm. And if we put a $10 million production line in, we can produce hemp bricks cheaper than they can produce clay bricks but not put a mortar in between them so that's taking hemp into mainstream and with this same product we've got to be able to make tilt up panels so we can build houses quickly. That report from David Clawton on the hemp industry. It's time for news headlines. It's a good afternoon to Damien McIntyre. Good afternoon. Tasmania's Tenants Union has welcomed the Liberal Party's election commitment to give renters more rights to keep pets in their homes. Under proposed changes to the Residential Tenancy Act, landlords would no longer have an automatic right to refuse pets in properties. The Liberals have also promised to add 200 new private properties to an incentive scheme that caps rents at 30% of the market value. And Tasmania police have charged a Victorian man with major drug trafficking after the seizure of 233 grams of ecstasy and ketamine in the state's northwest on Friday. Police responded to a trespass call at a business in Sprayton where they arrested and searched the 32-year-old, finding 28 grams of ecstasy and a small knife. They later searched a private residence where they seized another 162 grams of ecstasy, 43 grams of ketamine and cash. As well as trafficking, the man has been charged with multiple other drug-related offences and possess a dangerous article in a public place. Thanks, Damien. And more news, of course, at one o'clock. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, it's been a cracking summer for growing crops like strawberries and blueberries. But there's a growing following for old-fashioned berries too. A Marion berry is described as the uh, Cabernet of blackberries. So it's quite tasty. We have a few of those. They're a mid-season fruit. It's just one of the 14 varieties of berries grown on that property near Sheffield and we'll head there in just a tick. Plus, how do working dogs, um, how they've done wonders for a lot of people dealing with depression and we'll hear from one female farmer all about that as well. But before those stories, let's cross to the Bureau of Meteorology. Michael Conroy is, Conway is on there, is there for us this afternoon. Uh, Michael, uh, any rain to speak of today? Hey, Larissa. Yeah, there was a little bit of rain about 
Taz, I emphasise lethal there, I should, I should say. Lake Margaret yesterday had four millimetres in the 24 hours to 9am and two millimetres was also recorded in numerous places including Mount Reed, Zeehan and Cape Bruni. Since 9am, Mount Bob's in the south has had one millimetre so there hasn't been a lot there since, uh, since this morning. A pretty, other than that, a pretty nice day out there. Yeah, the clouds e- easing off, uh, evaporating through the south and it's been sunny um, through many places in the north. There is a bit of cloud building up now and th- there could be a few light showers about uh, inland parts of the north this afternoon and into the west as well. The the uh, other thing that could happen tomorrow is uh, we're, we're expecting some showers about uh, mainly about elevated parts of the north and about the west. There could be a thunderstorm though about the southwest tomorrow. That's a new expectation, a bit of instability there. And then on Wednesday, as a front draws near and starts drawing in northeasterly winds, um, they're quite moist and we could get a we could get thunderstorms through most of the state except the south and the west. So uh, watch out for that and possibly quite windy about the northeast. So we'll be looking at that closely. Thursday, the cold front moves through the afternoon, and it's going to be very, uh, it's going to be warm to, to hot through the state, especially around the southeast. Uh, fire, fire dangers will be enhanced uh, on Thursday as well before that front comes through. Because there has been a lot of concern recently about some of those dry lightning strikes we've had recently. So with those thunderstorms for Wednesday, Thursday, are they likely to be dry, or they'll have some precipitation? Uh, they will, the ones about the southwest tomorrow will have a, a little bit, but not a lot. And uh, the ones on um, on Wednesday will possibly dry, but uh, but um, yeah, it's 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 they're on the dry side, I guess you could say. They can't categorically be dry or wet, but yeah, yeah. drier than normal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's happening with coastal waters today? We've got uh, out on the water winds today. We've got. Uh, South to southwesterlies today, 15 to 25 knots. They'll be, they're starting to trend and are doing that now. South to southeasterly, 10 to 20 knots during the day, and then turning southeast to northeasterly in the evening. The winds tomorrow, we, the winds will come around to easterly, 15 to 25 knots about the north. Um, east to north, uh, east to northeasterly, 10 to 20 knots about the east, and uh, southeast and variable about 10 knots elsewhere about the state. So. Uh, pretty static wind directions tomorrow, not changing a lot. The swells about uh, today in the western south, we've got a southwesterly at two to three metres, reaching up to three to three and a half metres in the south. In the uh, for tomorrow is a southwesterly swell easing to one and a half to two and a half metres. For the north, both days is a westerly swell to one metre. And in the east today, a southerly swell, one to two metres, getting up to two to three metres in the south. Uh, and tomorrow there's a southerly swell of one to one and a half metres, getting up to two to three metres in the south in the morning and then easing off. Any warnings to speak of? No, absolutely none. With the with a bit of a high pressure ridge over us, uh, it's not really, not very strong winds about. Okay, too easy. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, Larissa. Michael Conway there at the Bureau of Meteorology. New from ABC Books, one of Australia's most experienced court reporters, Jamel Wells, goes on a regional road trip inside country courtrooms in her new book, The Outback Court Reporter. What goes on in a local courtroom can tell you a lot about the life and fiefdoms of a town. A sometimes funny, sometimes tragic look at courtrooms dotted across Australia. The Outback Court Reporter by Jamel Wells. Book and audiobook available in bookshops and online. You're with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up to 20 to 12 on the Tasmanian Country Hour. Well, there's no easy way to raise a family. The chaos, isolation and pressure can creep up on even the most resilient and experienced parents. But on a farm where there's no such thing as maternity leave, let alone daycare or playgroup, the challenges can be compounded. For Scylla Pursehouse, life on her central Queensland cattle property changed unexpectedly when she brought home baby number three. But as Callie Buchanan discovers, even the toughest times can be overcome with the right crew around you. You may have a good friend at work, that buddy you message funny pictures to during boring meetings, or someone you can vent to and know you'll get their full support. 
Priscilla Pursehouse has a work bestie. But she's a little different to most. They just know. And so there's this understanding of honesty and friendship and teamwork that I began to really understand with Ash. Ash Barkey is a border collie and she's much more than a pet. She's a working dog training to manage cattle on Silla's farm at Banban Springs in central Queensland. The pair were brought together at a difficult time in Silla's life. Living in the bush, so I was isolated. You know, you've so much to do. You're so exhausted. Um, that all seems to be about the kids and you just feel a little bit disconnected from the world, I guess. Equally at ease performing in the touring children's theatre production she developed or mustering cattle, Scylla considers herself motivated and resilient. But when baby Sydney arrived, managing three children under five, her farm and her projects became overwhelming. The exhaustion is very real. It just takes you down to your bare bones. And then this tiny creature who's dependent on you 24-7. And he was a particularly fussy baby. Maybe I just felt like I had nothing left in the tank and I lost my sense of self. I wasn't able to draw myself out of that where I normally would and it was a scary feeling. Scylla had applied before Sydney was born and when he was just 12 weeks old, she got the call up and welcomed a new colleague to the farm in Ashbarkey. Dogs are incredibly intuitive they can read your mood and this is not just voodoo they can see your happiness your bonding your oxytocin they can smell it and with that comes this beautiful honesty and this is why we form such incredible bonds with animals because you can't bullshit to a dog dogs and humans have been bonding for more than 8000 years and what Scylla describes is backed by science Dr Susan Hazel is a vet and associate professor at the University of Adelaide, where she oversees research into the role companion animals play in our well-being. Scientists have looked at hormones like oxytocin, which are involved in the human-to-baby bond, and we have oxytocin involved as well when we interact with pets. There's that word again, oxytocin. Ever heard of it? Sometimes it's called the love hormone. Oxytocin is made in your hypothalamus and it's released into your bloodstream by the pituitary gland. Its main job is to facilitate childbirth. It helps with contractions. But it can also be released through music, food, exercise and touch, like patting a dog. It promotes positive feelings that help us relax, trust and bond. But like with any loving relationship, those deep feelings can make hard times challenging as Dr Hazel explains. So I think there are risks on both sides. From the side of the person, one of the, the real downsides to having, I'll talk about dogs specifically, but it applies to other species, is that they don't live as long as we do. The other side of that, I, I'm a veterinarian and often my focus is the welfare of the animals themselves. So if you're not able to provide adequate care for them, there will be welfare costs for those animals and with the best intentions people might not be able to provide everything that they need. Back at the farm filming has finished but Scylla and Ash are still working together. She really propelled me forward and together we have been able to achieve such really beautiful things. Like I understand how much it has brought to my property and farm and business to have dedicated skills and time to having this incredible team of working dogs. I've always had a team of working dogs, but Master Dogs has allowed me to invest time and money into them and it has made a huge difference. Jenny Addy is the National Helpline Manager for Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, or PANDA. It's a service to help parents experiencing mental health challenges in the period from conception to a child's first birthday. This is something that affects one out of five women and one out of ten dads. So it's not something that isn't 
common, like you will know somebody who's had a perinatal mental health experience. About 12,000 people a year call the Panda Helpline, which is staffed by a mix of trained psychologists, social workers and parents with lived experience. Scylla wasn't diagnosed with depression, but Jenny says there's never a bad time to prioritise support. Usually they feel an absolute sense of relief that they are not the only one that is experiencing this. It depends on what your experience is, but generally it responds really well to treatment. For Scylla, Ash Barkey and her time on Mustard Dogs gave her permission to find her purpose and prioritise it. It just sounds like the most selfish thing that you could possibly ever do, but what it brings to you, what it brought to me was far greater than that little what felt like a selfish piece of time and money that I invested into myself. Just press pause on the world because that's what this does for me, connecting with this doggy. Everything else can just go buzz off. You breathe into that space and it releases the pressure. Oh, what a beautiful story. Ban Ban Springs Grazier and Muster Dogs participant, Scylla Pursehouse, ending that story from Callie Buchanan. And if you or someone you know might need extra support, you can call Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, PANDA, on 1300-726-306 or Lifeline on 13-1114. You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour with me, Larissa Smith, this afternoon. Well, you've heard of boysenberries and strawberries and blueberries, of course, but what about sylvanberries, tayberries? Reporter Meg Powell certainly hadn't come across those berries, but Olivia Rundle, part-time law lecturer, full-time berry grower at Barrington near Sheffield, knows all about them. <laughs> We're in uh, two rows of tayberries, which, in my opinion, are our best berry. What is a tayberry? <clears throat> it's a hybrid raspberry, blackberry uh, berry. It's sweet and aromatic and delicious. It has a very short season. It has to be picked by hand and it's very thorny, so that's why it's not very often grown as a commercial crop. Uh, and it's just you picking at the moment? That's correct. It's just me picking at the moment as well as people coming and picking their own. Okay. They're very laden. I, you've got a, a job ahead of you for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't keep up. <laughs> so these are our gooseberries which at the moment are green. They're just Some of them are just starting to turn colour. So ours are a red. Uh, we I'm pretty sure they're the Captivator variety, which is a French variety, and they don't have thorns, so they're quite pleasant to pick, unlike some other gooseberries. <laughs> they're cute. They look like little grapes. Yes. Single. Um, and when they're red, they're a little bit. They taste a little bit like a table grape, so they're they're oh. not really really tart. Mm. Mm. So this this patch we're coming into now we call the pigeon patch because there's an old pigeon loft in the middle of it. And again, real diversity here. So we've got another big blueberry enclosure. We've got black currants, uh, tart cherries, uh, raspberries, uh, a few red currants, and then a big patch of silverberries, which are absolutely delicious at the moment. So the silverberry is our early ripening blackberry, but they're actually a boysenberry crossed with a marionberry. And a marionberry is described as the uh, cabernet of blackberries. So it's quite tasty. We have a few of those. They're a mid-season fruit, uh, but the silverberry uh, fruits well all, for a long season. 
Uh, I'm really happy with how I pruned these this year because they're actually much easier to pick than last year. So that's just one of the many things I've learnt in a year and a half on this farm. Experience that comes, yeah, with time. <laughs> yes, correct. So would you like to try... Uh, I couldn't think of anything I want to do more. So that one's looking good. So you're looking for the really big, plump ones. Um, Ooh. Ooh. That is a good... That's an interesting flavour. Yes. It tastes completely different to the the other berries. The tea berry, yes. Yes. But this this is my other favorite the tayberry and the silverberries blueberries are a long-term favorite they ours aren't quite they're ready yet hat. but they're um a lot easier to grow than the rubus species which are just so fragile and are short keeping so that's one of the reasons we want to be a pick your own focused farm you know we're small it's a beautiful environment it's quite therapeutic wandering around here but also berries are so much better straight off the cane and so we want people to be able to have that experience so um, you know one option is to charge by the belly full so people don't even have to pretend they're going to get any in a bucket they can just (laughs) eat their fill (laughs) <laughs> oh, risky. I can eat a lot of berries, <laughs> yeah. I think. I know, I know, but that's okay. So long as people are enjoying them, we've got lots of berries to share. <laughs> These berries are Logan berries, so they are like the tay. They're a hybrid between a, a raspberry and a blackberry. Um, these ones happen by accident in the garden of US Supreme Court Judge Logan. Um He was an amateur horticulturalist who was trying to develop a superior kind of blackberry, which he eventually did, but I haven't found out which blackberry was his. Um, But the the Loganberry was a happy accident when he planted some raspberries a bit close to his blackberries. Um, But he was a bit excited because he named them after himself. What did you call it before? The the white man's privilege berry. <laughs> yes, that's, that's what I think of. But the Logan berry is very popular. It is a little bit more acidic than the Tay. Uh, they both are quite fragile berries. You've got a lot going on here for such a small farm, Olivia. Is that... Um, to do with making this place financially viable? Uh, that's correct. So we are, we have about three acres uh, of fruit on a 10-acre property. Uh, we're very small. Uh, I have seen uh, the statistics that are gathered about farms um, by the Productivity Commission to find a small farm as anything under 100 okay, acres. So well and truly <laughs> under that, yes. Correct. Uh, so we're still working out how to make this financially sustainable. We're committed to it being environmentally sustainable, how we farm. We're committed to the how we farm, but we have to work out how to best use our time and how uh, we are going to fit into the local food system. Plump Berries, Olivia Rundle showing Meg Powell around her canes laden with weird and wonderful berries. Sounds like she had a pretty good time on that story. Well, let's stay with horticulture because it doesn't matter what you're growing, native animals love a free feed. And for some farmers, it's a big financial cost. Others just prefer to roll with it. Like Wobbly Boot Vineyard in Campania, They've planted an extra 20% of grapes to cover the losses and owner Paul Williams and his wife purchased the property 10 years ago. There was a vineyard here initially and when we took over we sort of changed things to with a different philosophy and to grow the grapes in the way that we wanted to grow the grapes and to make the wine in a particular style that we enjoyed ourselves. And can you just uh, explain a little bit about your particular philosophy? It's an unusual philosophy in that as farmers, we believe that everything we should we do should be in harmony with nature. So our property is now accredited as a wildlife sanctuary 
and that is a uh, result of implementing certain practices that protect the wildlife that is on the property. Our philosophy is that the animals were here a lot longer than we were, so we have a responsibility as the people moving in here and uh, introducing crops and grapes to look after those animals. So that's, that's what we do. How does that kind of implement into viticulture? Um, I'm guessing, do you plant more to deal with the, the loss of, of maybe animals eating it? Like, how does it, how does it all work? We would lose, on average, 20% of our grape yield every year and to possums, paddy melons, bennets, wallabies. Not so much to birds. So when we 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 allow for that in terms of what we're we're trying to produce, what what our aims are. So what we've done is when we have planted vineyards, we have planted an additional twenty percent with that in mind. So that's twenty percent extra which is shared with the with the native wildlife so the really positive thing about that is that we don't have to be concerned about losing our crop because we've already allowed for it so it's not a particularly difficult thing to do um, and it certainly reduces the stress that i know that many people experience uh, when they see that their their crop has been nibbled away at. Mm. And have you talked to other uh, people in the industry? And, and do they um, how how what is their reactions? Uh, it varies. Um, most people are fairly positive about bringing in strategies. Uh, not everyone is going to be prepared to uh, increase. Uh, it, to plant more of their vines to, to allow for that. But there are also other strategies that we, we talk with them about which, which, which will help anyway. And that includes um, proper fencing to actually keep a lot of the wildlife out. And these are high fences um, so that they are uh, not only wombat proof and uh, paddy melon proof, but also deer proof as well. So, but once again, the downside of that there is a cost involved uh, for that type of fencing. But fencing, but that is very effective in the scheme of things for people who are planting out vineyards. And there's certainly a lot being planted out in Tasmania at the moment. There's a great expense of actually planting a vineyard in. So if you're going to invest that amount of money, why not invest an extra couple of thousand dollars per hectare to fence it properly? Paul Williams from Wobbly Boot Vineyard in southern Tasmania speaking with Eliza Closer. 